This week on Writers Inc. Publicity doesn't always equate to sales. And I'm very upfront about that right off the bat. I, I tell authors that even if you work with me for a year or two years, or even six months or, or whatever, the work that we're doing may not equate to sales right off the bat. So you have to look at it from a, a long-term basis. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's In. Hey, what's up, JD? Hey, man. So the, the wall and the steps are finally finished. They're done. <laughs> They're done. Yeah, completely cleared out. Everybody's gone. All the hardware is gone. There's a little sign out front with the landscaper's contact info for anybody that drives by and wants to build one. But it is so nice and quiet out there. It is it is unbelievable. But I, I had to pick up the phone and, and actually give them a call because I, I ran into a problem. Um, I, I mentioned to you that we've got a home theater here, right? I, I think I talked about that on yeah. the air. Um, so I, I, I've got um, a screen in there that's a decent size. It's 165 inches. Um, but it's a... Um, it's a widescreen, so it's not 16 by 9. Um, so if you know, normally if you watch like a movie on a regular television, you know you've got those bars at the top and the bottom. With with this one, it's the opposite. If you watch you know something that's meant for television, you've got bars on the left and the right. Yeah. Um, because it's it's wider. So it, those bars have always bugged the hell out of me. Like I've had a home theater in like every house, you know, going back years and years. I found a screen that actually has motorized masking. So depending on what you're watching, it's got these you know, things that will either come up from the top and the bottom or the right and the left, but it'll basically resize your screen to fit whatever you're watching. And, and somehow it, it, it just knows that. I guess there's some kind of signal coming through the, the wire where it can tell it that. Um, yeah. So I found one of these and I ordered it, but you know it, it's 165 inches, which is pretty big. I mean, that's 13 some feet wide. Um, and it's coming out of a company down in, in Florida. So they, they custom built it for me and they put it on a truck and they shipped it out here. And I got a call from the freight company the other day and they said, well, it's in a crate. The crate's 14 feet long. It weighs 650 pounds. We can get it to your house, but we've got no way to get it off the truck. <laughs> <laughs> so we've been going back and forth. Like they, you know, like at first I was like, well, okay, well, I'll just hire some people off of Craigslist and have them meet us out here and we'll just, you know, we'll pick it up. And you know, how many guys do you need? Like maybe six to lift something that big. And they're like, well, you know, for liability reasons, we can't let anybody on the truck. So you have to get it off the truck without actually setting foot on our truck. Okay. Um, so then I went back to the company that shipped it and I told them, well, this is kind of your problem. You picked the shipper. You could have used anybody. You know, I'm sure there's trucks with cranes. Like Home Depot comes by here all the time. They've got little forklifts and cranes and stuff on there. Um, but they, they wanted no part of that. They, they weren't willing to fix the problem. So the shipping company was ready to send this thing back like all the way to Florida until they could solve it or store it somewhere. You know, And then I'd be on the hook for a storage fee. Um, so I had to reach out to my landscaper because he's got a forklift. And I was like, hey, um, do you mind just coming back out here just for one day? I can give you a window of four hours. That's the other thing. Like, they, they won't give me a specific time. So I had to get my landscaper to agree to come out here with his forklift and hang out at my house from 10 o'clock till 2 o'clock in the afternoon um, and just kind of wait for these guys to show up in order to get this thing off the back. Um, 
So that's happening tomorrow. So if you don't hear wow. from me, that's that's probably because something <laughs> went horribly wrong, and I'm underneath a, a, a big old 600 pound crate in my my front yard. Yikes! Has your uh... Has your neighbor given her a concession speech yet? Is she demanding a recount? Is uh, she delusional in the results of the uh, the installation? That sounds oddly familiar. I don't know where you got that. That's it. I'm just. I don't know. I'm just wondering. <laughs> no, but you know what? Like they've they've aggravated literally everybody that lives on this island, and everybody here warned us to stay away from them when we first moved here. And like since that happened, like they they kind of shirk around their house. Like I see them outside a little bit, but like they quickly like. They, duck back inside they close up their door like they they like just won't come out like they're not raking their yard you know they're not <laughs> they're just like these hermits now that that are just kind of hanging out over there so i, I don't know what's going on are they know. sending just random inflammatory tweets from I'm, inside i'm their pretty house? sure she's making a voodoo doll and you know <laughs> hanging out in an upstairs window surrounded by you know, like an octagon with candles or something weird um, but no, we, we haven't seen them. Like I, in my office actually looks out and I can see their driveway and like they're, you know, I know they're home because I, you know, the cars are all there and every once in a while the front door opens and you know, like the husband will duck out really quick to grab the garbage can. But like, he's like back inside and closes the door, like without talking to anybody, you know, and not just me, it's like all, all the surrounding neighbors, like they, they're at the point where just nobody wants anything to do with them anymore. So I'm really <laughs> hoping I'm going to look out there one morning and just see a for sale sign. Yeah. Well, you might. <laughs> 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 so oh, in, nice. in industry news um do you do you subscribe to the authors guild or are you part of that at all i am not okay it, it's a, a great resource um for for any author it doesn't really matter how you're published but they've got a you know douglas preston is the the president you know preston and child they, they write mm -hmm. um quite a bit of books together um he just put out a, an op-ed um, where he's talking about two of the lawsuits that they're involved with. And it, it's something I think everybody should basically read, but they're, they're suing two organizations that are essentially you know, publishing free libraries. Um, you know, they're, they're taking the DRM off of books and they're putting them out there and making them downloadable for basically anybody who wants them. Um, and wow. they're, they're in foreign countries, so it's a very difficult thing to shut down. But he, he goes into a little bit on that and on the lawsuits and also talks about, um, you know, how authors are, you know, or many aren't earning a living wage anymore and how difficult it is to make a living in, in this particular industry. And it's it's a very interesting read. I don't want to go into all the details, but it, you know, if our listeners are are into that sort of thing, just head over to the Authors Guild, and there's probably a link right on the fir the, the first page yeah. um, to get to that one. And it, and it got me thinking about something. And we talked about this a little bit off the air. Um, you know, like, there's so many independent authors out there, and you know, a lot of them are, are really solid, strong writers, and and they deserve to be heard. But then there's also the other ones. You know, the ones that you know they they write a quick book. There's no edits whatsoever. They hit publish and they throw it up on Amazon, and they're, they're trying to get you know as many out there as they possibly can um and you know it got me thinking like you know like how is that cluttering up the system so i just did a little bit of research as of you know the latest article i could find there's 3.4 million books on amazon um and and it's growing you know rather rather quickly um and it, I, I began thinking like you know it, would it be possible to build in some kind of virtual obsolescence or is like that where, where we're heading? Like, is Amazon going to continue to allow anybody and everybody to publish until this becomes 10 million, 20 million, 50 million, hundred million, or are they going to put some kind of safeguard in there to, to kind of govern it? Um, and I'm not so sure that that's a bad thing. So, you know, like I was wondering if, you know, like if they were to do that, what would they use as criteria? Would it be like books that don't have a certain rating? Um, you know, they fall below a certain, you know, average, uh, their sales numbers are below a certain average, whatever it might be. Um, 
I, I, I've got a feeling we're going to see something like that at, at some point, you know, because in a physical bookstore, you know, that basically happens, you know, by necessity. They've only got so much space on the shelves. Um, Amazon, you know, I, I think at some point they're going to realize the search results are getting cluttered up with a lot of things that people don't necessarily want to read. Uh, and they, they want to drill down to the, you know, the, the real good stuff or the you know the books that they do want. Um, I don't know where that's going, but it just it got me thinking. It's an interesting idea, and I think one of the things that I've realized over the years is that Amazon really doesn't care about the authors. They care about the readers. Right. And and so if it's a situation where it, it hurts the reading experience or the browsing experience on Amazon for the customer, that could prompt some action. And it's not, it's not that wild of an idea. Like um, Etsy does something similar to what you're talking about. So if you open an Etsy shop and you upload all these products, like let's say you want to flood the Etsy market with a hundred versions of, of your t-shirt. Um, if they don't sell, and I don't know what the specific number is, but if they don't sell a certain number of items within a certain time frame, it delists the item. So it automatically takes it off the platform. Uh, so I think that's sort of the, the system you're, you're kind of talking about here. Yeah, some kind of quality control, you know, just to, to keep the numbers, you know, in a, in a range that's, you know, reasonable. Um, and, and also to keep the, the you know, the, the developers or the creators in check you know nobody should be able to create a book i mean if you go back in, in you know a couple of years ago because of kdp um authors were stuffing books you know they were because they were getting paid you know based on the percentage of the book read rather than a page count um so they would you know just literally just stuff a book with as many pages as they could or or they would put out um shorter books um you know so that you would hit like the 10 percent mark faster so they could get paid quicker um but a lot of these books were worthless and and you know that aggravates you know people if you buy one of those um you know there's there's a you know obviously I'm a huge Stephen King fan. Like my, my feed at Amazon is filled with somebody named Stephen R. King. I don't, I don't know if you've seen this yet, but like the, the covers look very similar to a Stephen King book. Um, you know, the titles, the descriptions. Um, but if you go to the, you know, the reviews, it's basically, you know, like a two star review average, I think on all of them. And it's just people complaining, going, Hey, this isn't Stephen King. This is Stephen King. Um, you know, and it's, it's one of those things where, you know, I'm sure they're not alone. I, I know, um, even we just mentioned, uh, Douglas Preston. I think there's a, a fake author out there on Amazon named Preston Child, you know, because he writes with, with, um, Lincoln Child. Um, so there's people that try to game the system and, and there's just, there's no room for any of that. Yeah, I agree. Uh, something else that's going on that they may kind of feed into this, um, over at Audible, you can actually return an audiobook, which I, I didn't know about. Um, but you can listen to the entire thing, you know, you can get all the way to the end. And if you decide that you don't want it, you can hit the return button and send it back. And along the same lines, if you decide that, you know, you, you don't want to pay for another credit for the month, you can return a book that you've read and you can get another credit. Um, so audible, you know, is essentially taking care of themselves because, you know, and, and the customer, because they're giving them the ability to do that. But, you know, the author is, is kind of getting burned in this process. Um, I, I honestly don't know whether you can return a book on Amazon. Um, you can. Can you? Okay. So yeah, yeah you can so, read a you can read an ebook on Amazon and then return it. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm surprised that there's not a little safeguard there that you know you get past a certain percentage or something and it's yours. But I don't know. I'm not the one making these decisions. No, like I said, the priority is the reader. It's not the author. So we kind of just have to deal with whatever policies come down from atop Mount Rainier or wherever Bezos lives these days. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on in your world? Uh, just fall turn into winter. Um, my son and I are kind of, uh, planning out a little, a little, uh, little hobby project. We're going to do a cover of a Smashing Pumpkins song and, and try and do something creative with it. And, uh, so that's going to be fun. So, a little something to do, you know, especially with the, with the pandemic now, it's, it's hard to stay entertained and, and you can't really go anywhere. And, uh, 
So yeah, we're gonna we're gonna have some fun with that. Yeah, I just saw a message this morning where we might go into lockdown again for another four to six weeks. Um, yeah, it's being, it's being proposed by the, the the new people entering the the big White House. So we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll see how that plays out. I don't know how many people are gonna actually stand for that. Um, I, I honestly feel like we're on the edge of civil war here. Like I don't even like looking at the news. I just kind of glance at it with one eye covered and, and turn I, away as fast as I can. I, I know. I, I, I just kind of want to get like past January. Yeah. That's kind of, I just want to get there like as soon as we can. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Who do we have on today? Well, we have uh, Mickey Mickelson on today. Mickey runs a PR agency called Creative Edge, and he's also associated with Top Shelf Magazine. And so we kind of uh, dive a little bit into those. Uh, Mickey's from Canada, so it's it's going to be uh, it's going to be fun to get his perspective on on PR because this is something that uh, I know a lot of authors are are wrestling with traditionally and indie is you know how do I get seen? How do I get discovered? How how do I get in front of readers? And and uh, hopefully Mickey's going to give us some uh, some good ideas on that. Yeah, that question's been around, I think, since the very first book was published. Um, I mean, personally, I, I tend to, if I'm traditionally published on a particular title, I wait for the publisher to give me their marketing plan, um, and then I try to punch holes in it. Um, yeah, I basically look at what they're doing, and I try to figure out what they're not doing, and then I try to fill those gaps. Um, but it's a tricky thing, because if I do fill those gaps, I try not to tell them what I'm doing, because I don't want them to take the foot off the accelerator at all. So if, if I'm out there buying Facebook ads, I don't want them to stop doing you know whatever it is they might be doing, because they think I'm doing something. Right. Um, but at the same time, there's a, a lot of boxes you've got to tick from a publicity standpoint, if you really want to get the word out. Um, and you know not everybody's going to cover every, every single base. Before we roll into that, just a reminder that uh, Kobo is our wonderful new sponsor. So if you guys are taking your books wide, make sure you uh, check out Kobo Writing Life and all the great services that they have to offer, uh, including a promotions tab. Uh, you can set your price, whatever you want it to be. And that team at Kobo is top notch. So uh, make sure you go there and support Kobo. And we also want to give a shout out to a new uh, patron of the Writers Inc. podcast, Jeff Elkins. So Jeff, thanks for becoming a patron and uh, showing your support. Um, so yeah, looking forward to this one. Here he is, Mickey Mickelson. All right, I thought I would open with the most important question I could ever ask a Canadian, which is Mario Lemieux yeah. or Wayne Gretzky. Um, <laughs> I would I, I would have said Bobby Orr, but I'm a Boston <laughs> Bruins fan. But we'll we'll go with Wayne Gretzky today. Okay, okay. Uh, I'm, I'm a actually bit a bigger baseball fan than I am a hockey fan. Truth be told, it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I hear that a lot from Canadians. I just assume they're really into hockey, and a lot of them are like, "No, it's okay, but it's not really my thing." So you're off the hook. Yeah, baseball. I live and breathe baseball. Bottom line. <laughs> uh, well, okay. Now that we got that really difficult question out of the way. Uh, I love, <laughs> I, I love what you're doing with Creative Edge. I think uh, for a yeah. lot of our listeners who are. Um, we have listeners who are, who are aspiring to be traditionally published, and we have a lot of listeners who are uh, self-published or independent. And I think especially for self-publishers and for independent authors, they're not really sure exactly what a publicist is or what they do. So, so maybe you could start by explaining what it is you do for authors. Yeah, I mean, we've been around since March of 2016, and our first year and a half, that was our, our um, product base. It was all indie authors so we actually started out gearing towards that um 
we set up book signings, we set up media interviews, we set up all kinds of different relationships in terms of podcasts and, and shows like yourselves and book reviews and, and basically contact with every single medium you could think of, whether it be print, radio, TV, and all kinds of areas. And we started out with indie authors. And what we found with that was a lot of them didn't know where to go themselves. So I thought there was a niche there because not a lot of publicity companies were catering towards that. There was always the in-house public publicists with the big five and then some other independent publicity firms as well. But they, again, they wanted the, the big dollars and the traditional published authors. So Creative Edge built their, their forum and platform based on the fact that they were working with indies. Interesting. Now, I know one of the questions that I hear a lot, and I've had this one myself, is um, especially for an indie, you know, how does a how does an author know when's the right time to need a publicist? I mean, is that something they should be thinking about early on in the career? Is that sort of a branding thing that comes later? What's your opinion on that? You know, I, I talk to five to ten authors almost every single week now because, well, they're reaching out to us because word has gotten out about us. And my advice around that is, is very, very simple. You have to have a direct vision of what you want to do with your book. You have to have some direction. You have to have a professional basis. Your book has to look good. You have to be able to have some money put aside to, to help with the marketing stream. Because even though I'm catering towards indie authors, I'm not going to be able to promote every indie author if, if the product that they're showcasing or the vision that they want to do is not going to be effective in my mind. So that, that would be my advice is to get a clear vision of where you want to go. And if you can do that, then contact the publicist and have a conversation around it. But if you're not ready, then don't bother because it's, it's not going to work out anyways. Mm. And how would you, if you were one of those authors, how would you, what metrics would you use for making that decision? So is it sort of a thing where like, you know, I want to be a full-time writer or is it a dollar amount? Is it a sales figure? Like what, when you're refining your vision as the author, before you contact the publicist, what are, what are you, what should you be thinking about? Well, I think there's expectations that need to be followed as well, because publicity doesn't always equate to sales. And, I'm very upfront about that right off the bat. I, I tell authors that even if you work with me for a year or two years or even six months or, or whatever, the work that we're doing may not equate to sales right off the bat. So you have to look at it from a, a long-term basis because what we're essentially doing is, is building up that author's brand in terms of their books and in terms of what they, they write in terms of their image and all of that. And that takes time and time never always equals dollars amounts. So what I tell authors is once they've got a vision of what they want to do, determine from themselves what they really want to do and, and what the role of media or, or whatever is going to, to help them with. If it's just equating to sales that they're focusing on, I wouldn't maybe even suggest getting a publicist. I would possibly suggest them reaching out to some blog tours, maybe trying to get a book by that in, maybe reducing their, their book online and doing things that way. 
But if they're really looking to boost their brand over a long-term basis, that's what I would be reaching out to a publicist because a publicist can definitely definitely happen with that, help mm. with that. That makes sense. Yeah, that's a good distinction between sort of a long-term branding exercise versus a short-term revenue game, gain, which is probably what you're getting with paid advertising. Exactly. And I mean, even with the relationship with my clients, I, I basically tell them once they start working with me, and some of them have done this themselves, actually, they've said, you know, they're still re they're looking out for their own opportunities and not looping me in. And it's like, well, why are you hiring me then? Why are you paying me if I'm not directly involved with everything you're doing in marketing? Like I should be leveraging these opportunities for you or at least helping you get them instead of you doing all the grunt work for it. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't we back it's up a change a, in process, right? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Change in mindset too. Uh, let's back up absolutely. for a minute and tell me about how uh, creative edge started. Uh, we started in March of 2016. I have a friend who wrote a book who I work with. Uh, we work in a different, um, a full-time basis. We both work within uh, this basis. And she wrote a book and we were on the road together. And I used to work for Chapters, which is the largest book book sale, sales in um, chain in Canada. I used to set up events for them. So I talked to this friend of mine and <clears throat> her name is Miranda O, by the way. Uh, very good author. But I talked to her and said, you want some help getting your book out? She said, yeah, because she didn't know what she was doing with that. She knew it was writing, but she didn't know how to go start or that. We ended up doing a, a full Western Canada tour, and it was very, very successful. And so I found that I had a niche for it. And so I started a little company after word got out, and other people were contacting me to see if I could do it for them. And that was in March of 2016. By August, I'd probably gotten 52 clients. Wow. Through word of mouth. And it just started from there. Wow. At what point or how did you know that this is what this was your thing? Like you personally, how did at what point did you say, yeah, this is what I'm meant to do. This is what I'm really good at and what I enjoy. the opportunity really just fell in my lap. I didn't envision doing this, to be honest. I, I never envisioned myself ever doing something like this, but after talking with some media and getting some opportunities for some indie authors who'd never had opportunities before, it led me to believe that there was something I was doing correctly. Now, did I make mistakes when I first started? Absolutely. I was still learning my crap, but through time, we've, we've gotten to a place where we now have international media connections and um, a combination of indies and traditional authors, multiple New York Times booksellers, multiple um, multiple award winners. It's really blossomed into a, a huge community. Yeah. And uh, sort of a follow-up to that, um, if, if we're just looking at, say, publicity companies in general, What's the differentiator for Creative Edge? What makes your approach um, either different or unique? We have a different kind of process in terms of community findings, collaboration. Uh, we, we, we don't just do press releases or email blasts to everybody. When I do a book launch, I'm usually catering my, my message to about 400 to 500 different email aspects. So I'm reaching out 400 times in an email 
But not only that, we've, we've built up relationships with the media. We've gotten to know them as people. And, and a lot of them are friends of mine. And it's more of a collaborative standpoint rather than just uh, a work business relationship. It's more like a personal relationship as well. And that's paid dividends for us. We have clients that are in the media that started as media people and I signed them as clients. I've got TV stations. I've got some radio shows where we've managed to leverage full yearly schedules for, for our clients. In one case, there's a station in the UK, Siren Radio, and they bring one of my clients on every single week for the entire year. So that, that to me, that's a different process because it actually saves from having to write a press release and, and try to do a pitch to some of these places because the schedule's already made. We've done that about 30 to 35 times this year. Excellent. Uh, this is sort of a, a meta question because we're on a podcast, but uh, you, you started in, in 2016. How has the podcast landscape shifted and how has that affected the way you work with clients? Um, there's some there's been some podcasts that have fallen by the wayside just based on reach and income levels and, and all of that. The podcasts that are coming out now, to me, they're they're catering more to the business of writing rather than the promotional aspect of writing. No different than, than what we're talking about right now with, with my company. I mean, yes, podcasts are, are geared towards publicity and, and marketing, of course, that's that's part of it. But I think that people and actually authors are seeing more value by being able to talk about the business of writing and, and bringing things to the table that they actually do, which ultimately creates relevance for, for their brands. And I think it's a really important point to go forward with. And I hope it continues. Mm. Are, are you uh, in, are, are, do you have certain podcasts that, uh, that you identify as these would be good for my clients versus that might not have, that might not reach the audience we're trying to reach, or is it pretty specific to each individual client? Um, I wouldn't say that. I, I, I think that, I mean, we're very science fiction fantasy heavy with our client base and there's a reason for that. So I tend to focus a lot with those just because of the genres that my authors write in. Having said that though, my process is, is pretty effective with virtually any kind of genre. And there are podcasts where we have nonfiction writers that can go on there and be just as effective as, say, a horror writer or a science fiction writer. Um, we leverage a ton of pod- podcasts, and they're, they're all very effective, and they all do different things, and it's all very, very good. Now, having said that, I'm never going to give a romance writer uh, a spot on a science fiction podcast like sci-fi Saturday night or the amphibian press podcast. I'm just not going to do that. Right. But overall the, the process does make sense. Yes. And we, we leverage a great deal of them. No, no different than your show. Right. So. Right. Yeah. Uh, can you, I'll, I'll keep the secret. I promise I won't tell anyone, but who's your favorite client? <laughs> I'm just kidding. You don't have to answer that. <laughs> Turn the recording button off. We'll gladly tell you. Just kidding. <laughs> well, do you, uh, this is uh, brag a little bit. I'd, I'd like to hear about some of the successes you've had with some of your clients. Uh, well, I've done a full tour and a half 
with New York Times bestseller Tosca Lee. We've she never did a library tour before in terms of marketing her books, and we did a full full on tour throughout Nebraska and Iowa last year and this year. Um, I worked with Robert J. Sawyer on the paperback release of Quantum Night, which is a book he'd been out for a year, and he actually got more more interview bases working with me than he had the year before when the book actually came out. So those are some of the key highlights. Other highlights we've done, uh, we've got an arrangement with the Imaginarium Book Festival. They, they've given me the special guest, guest of honor spot for this year and next year with the premise that I, that I basically lead the, the way for promoting their festival in Washington, D.C. So these are just some of the key things that we're doing and there's so many more like that but they're definitely highlights yeah yeah fantastic uh and i've talked to tosca she is wonderful and uh, it's good that she's getting some recognition yeah that's great um oh she's such a marketable nice girl yeah she is she's fantastic uh as a publicist and uh i'm really curious like do you have a typical day and if so what does that look like what do you do you know on a random wednesday there is no typical day with what I do. <laughs> uh, I'm part-time, to be honest. I have a full-time job on top of this. So everything I do is on very, very early mornings with Creative Edge and evenings and full-on weekends. So it varies. I get a lot of texts during the day. Those texts aren't reached back out to until after hours. But I'm up at usually 4 a.m., on a Monday and actually 4 a.m. every single day. And I'll do work for two hours, two to three hours. And I go do my day job and then I'm back at it at night. So yeah, I don't sleep, (laughs) but you got to have passion for what you're doing basically. Yeah. Do you get up? Nothing, nothing, no typical day, no typical day. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Do you set an alarm for 4 a.m. or do you just wake up at 4 a.m.? I wake up at 4 a.m. No alarm needed. Yes, same here. Isn't that crazy? Uh, why is it important for you to get those those first few hours in on Creative Edge before you go to the day job? It just kickstarts everything. And once you get into work mode, you I, I work from home for both positions. So I have an advantage in that, but it just kickstarts everything and you can just keep going once you once you woke up, you're good, right? The yeah. waking up part's the hard part and actually getting started. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I did that for years uh, before I left the day job. And I don't yeah. know if you feel this way, but I always felt like if I got up and I did my writing within the first hour or so, it almost didn't matter what happened the rest of the day. It was already a win. Yeah, I'm always, the first thing I do when I get up, I guess this is a process that I do do, is the first thing I do when I get up is I go through my email box and I clean that all up because, emails keep pouring in even throughout the night. So if I'm down to 50 emails uh, one day, one night, I'll wake up the next morning and I'll have an additional 30 to go through. So yeah. I do that first. Yeah. <laughs> Good for you. That that takes dedication too. Uh, do, do you have uh, aspirations of, of taking Creative Edge on as, you, as your full-time gig at some point, or do you kind of like to have it as a side hustle? Um, I, I like it as a side hustle. I mean, at some point, will it be full-time? I don't know about that. At some point, will I have to hire somebody else? 
possibly. I mean, the whole premise of doing this when I started in 2016 and found that we were successful was we want to be global. And I still say that today. We want to be recognized as a global entity in terms of marketing and publicity. And we want to represent authors not just in the Canada and the United States, but all over the world. And we've, we're, we're starting that. I mean, we've got an author in Australia, Liz Butcher. We, we represent Humphrey Hawksley. He's a foreign correspondent for the BBC. Um, I believe he lives in South Africa and does some work in the UK as well. So it's, it's from a client perspective, we want to be global. From a media perspective, we're, we're already global. We have media connections all over the world. All right, Mickey, let's change gears and talk a little bit about Top Shelf Magazine. What is it? They're a, a literary magazine in the United States that's really focused on um, publicity and promotion of, of key authors um, worldwide, specifically. They, they do interviews. They, they conduct book reviews. Um, they do guest posts. It's a really mainstream magazine and, and one that's really advocating for authors specifically geared towards library promotion, bookseller promotion, all of that. And it's just wonderful, 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 wonderful. Is there, uh, does it lean towards indie authors versus traditionally published authors or is there not a difference? There's not a real set difference in my mind. Um, since, I, since I've been collaborating with them, I've seen articles on, on both scales, to be honest. And, and it's really ironic because They've actually put even on cover stories, they've put some indie authors, including some of my own, on, on the front cover. And that's typically not what happens. I mean, they've they've got some of the bigger names as well. I mean, Brad Thor, John Land, that kind of that, those kinds of individuals. But beyond that, they've they've also covered other indies who've had some relative streams of success. So it's yeah. a, a very well-rounded clientele exposure for sure. Great. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about your association with the magazine? Yeah. So when I formed Creative Edge in 2016, I, I started working with them a little bit. They uh, they interviewed some of my my mainstream commercial people, um, New York Times bestseller Tosca Lee being one. And then I just started forming a relationship with them. And then we got talking one day and, and they said, well, Mickey, why don't you just start collaborating with us more on a basis on a more substantial basis so since that collaboration has happened i basically had all the book review promotion aspect from that aspect um i've got an author who does a lot of the interviews for the magazine now we're, we're doing guest posts monthly so we've got a more in-depth presence within that magazine and it's built and it's paid dividends for me specifically because i'm getting client exposure but at the same time, they also have someone who's able to help manage some of the other day-to-day -day operations in terms of timing. So it's a win-win for both of us. Yeah. You know, as I was looking at their platform, I noticed that they have this uh, unique, uh, they call it a social media partnership. Um, yeah. How does that work? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, I don't know all of that aspect, and I should have maybe done some research around that. But um, essentially, they've, they've got partner aspects. They've got partners that they build within um, that help them with promotional aspects within the magazine. They've got top, top shelf awards at the end of the year as well. That I'm sure the partners have, some of their partners have key aspects to that. 
So am I listed as a partner? Likely. I think I'm more of an in-depth collaborator rather than just a partner aspect. But um, again, they're, they're getting con contributions from, from almost every major book, book chain there is in terms of publishers, Penguin, um, all, all the big five. So it's, it's very, very, very good. Yeah. You mentioned the awards. Um, how long have they been doing that? Um, what's that like? Um, from my understanding, it's been going on since the beginning of the magazine being run, but they've, they've got categories that they give the awards out to every single year um, in a different variety of genres, horror, suspense, thriller, that kind of thing. And, and the, the amount of applications they're getting for that are just incredible. Like I saw the review books last year. Um, I, read, I read five books myself, and that's just one person. So they've got a number of people who help with this, but uh, it's very, very good. And all the authors who apply get a lot of exposure to the magazine for it. So mm. it's phenomenal. I, I noticed they also have within the magazine and it's open to authors um, uh, in, in, in magazine advertising. Have you had any of your clients or your authors uh, place ads and what have those results been like if they have? I'll, I'll be honest, I haven't had to do that from my, I mean, that's not just something that we've worked, looked at. Um, but I do know that the magazine has a huge following in the United States specifically. And exposure, maybe not from the ad standpoint I could speak to, but I could speak to the interviews that we've been given. And I could speak to the, the amount of exclusivity that we've had from the guest posts. And it's all been very, very, very well received. Excellent. Excellent. If that helps. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Great publication. Highly recommended. Um, is there anything sure. else you think it would be important for authors listening to this to know about Top Shelf or maybe ways that they can use some of these services? Just, you know, share the links if they get exposure in the magazine and, and reach out. Top Shelf is, is very open to hearing a lot about different ideas. Um, they spend a ton of work building this magazine on a monthly basis. Uh, I know the owners directly and they're working on going to make sure that not only is the product a quality product, but it's going to reflect the needs of the people that they're representing within those magazines. So the stories they're issuing are high quality stories. Um, they take very, very strong due diligence in editing the stories. The reviews are, are also very, very, they have an extensive, and I can speak this because I've helped build it. They have an extensive book review team that's really, again, they, the review team likes to read books and they want to be professional when they're issuing those reviews as well. So, I mean, they're not paid reviews in a lot of cases. So, you know that the reviews are, are ethically substantial. If you get a five star from a reviewer on top shelf, it's it's warranted. Great. So uh, on a high level, Mickey, what what is the what role does the magazine serve for the average author? What what, what can they hope to get out of it on a high level? Yeah. So top shelf, from my from my view, and in talking with 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 the editors obviously at top shelf they're geared around promotion and they're geared around publicity um that's what they're there for they want to promote good strong solid writers they're not about literary and writing and 
and and talking about the the mechanics of that their their goal is to promote books and ensure that the books that are displayed in the magazine the word is spread widespread to libraries bookstores all promotion and it's extensive not only in the united states but internationally so excellent excellent well uh as we kind of pull the conversation to a close i have one question I, I like to ask all the guests, and uh, you can answer this however you want, but but given um, what you've seen and where you are now, where do you think the publishing industry is headed in the next, say, five to ten years? I think that small press publishers have to be very innovative with their marketing streams, um, leverage their house publicists, and get the word out about their books. The problem is that a lot of major, major media aren't covering the small press books, they, they see them as being self-published. And that's, I think it's bad karma because there's a lot of great self-published books out there. But I really do think that self-published authors, small press, publishing houses, they have to be very innovative with how they work with stuff. And they have to be make sure that the messaging is key. Um, the big five will always get the attention, i.e. Publishers Weekly, New York Times, all of that because you have the marketing dollars behind that. And everyone else has to find ways to combat that and, and be innovative in their pitches, which is something that we've actually done. We've got two, two self-published authors who are now international bestsellers do our, and I think we, we helped with their processes to get there with that. So that, that's my take. It's going to be dog eat dog world. And the best survivors could be the ones who are able to, to cater to what's coming down the pipe. So JD, what do you think about uh, PR agencies? Uh, have you used them? What kind of success have you had? I'd, I'd be curious to hear what your thoughts are on the interview. Yeah, so I, um, I, I, when I first published Forsaken, I wasn't sure where to go with, with that sort of thing. So I started researching PR firms, and you know, I, I know a lot of people in the traditional side that have been doing this forever. So I reached out to all of them and figured out who they were using. Um, I ended up signing with a, a really big firm in New York um, that cost me a boatload of money um, and, and got me, I think, like three blog reviews. You know, like it, there was like nothing, you know, for, for what I was spending. And I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I spent probably like fifteen to twenty thousand dollars on this oh. firm, um, you know, for for a couple of reviews. Um, and, you know, they, they said they were going to get Amazon reviews. They were going to do this. They were going to do that. Um, so I, I completely changed the way I, I deal with that. So I, I've got two publicists right now that are on my payroll and I, I pay them a la carte and it's based on performance. Um, so I've got one who focuses 100% on traditional press and she's got a list of every newspaper and magazine in the country and, and basically what I'll pay her if she gets my name in there. Um, otherwise she doesn't get paid a dime. Um, and, and that works out well because she's a hustler. She gets it done. And, and from my standpoint, I'm only paying her for results. Um, I've got the same thing on the um, the social media side. I've got somebody who handles my social media accounts and, and she's only paid based on, on what I, you know, what I actually see, you know, so for each blog review that she gets, she gets a certain dollar amount, things like that. Um, so that's kind of the direction that I went. I, I, you know, after my experience with that first one, I just wasn't comfortable paying somebody by the hour um, or paying a, a flat retainer every month. Um, it just didn't make sense to me. I, I felt like it was totally out of my control and, and I didn't have, you know, I had no idea where my money was going. Yeah. And I, and I too, I also, um, the other side of that, I think, is that Mickey talked about, 
it being sort of a slow growth. You know, like you um, sometimes it's unrealistic uh, the the results that authors expect. I mean, for what you paid for that agency, I think that's a different circumstance. But for, generally speaking, you know, if you if you hire someone to do PR, um, you're not. It's not likely you're going to hit like the bestseller list the next day. You know, like there there's probably some cumulative growth that has to happen over time. Um, and do you see that happening even with, even with your arrangement? Do you see that sort of snowball effect happening? Yeah. Well, it's all about, you know, touch points and just people seeing your name, you know, like it's very difficult. Like I've, I've taken on full page ads in publishers weekly before. Um, and the first time I did it, you know, the next day I was watching my Amazon sales, like, you know, the day after it came out waiting to see some kind of spike. And, and what you realize is you don't actually get that. Um, and it comes down to, you know, the, that old marketing adage where you have to get in front of somebody a certain number of times before they'll actually pull the trigger on it. So it's, you know, you're just reminding them, throwing your name out there and they see it again and again and again, and then eventually they actually do get it. Um, so unfortunately, with a lot of these things, it's very difficult to, to measure. Um, you know, I'm sure like, you know, taking a full page ad on Publishers Weekly probably moved the needle, you know, at some point, but there's no real metric to, to monitor that. Um, it's the same thing with, you know, when you do an interview, you know, whether it's a blog interview or, you know, for a magazine or whether it's on television, um, there's just no way to gauge that. But I, I think the actual benefit is a combination of all these different things. People are seeing you in these, you know, in, in, in multiple places, and, and that's where the, the sales numbers actually come from. So you, you could zero in and you could say, I'm only doing Facebook ads um, because that's something you can measure. But at the same time, I, I don't think you're going to get the kind of results you need. I think some of these things have to still be part of the program. Yeah. And, and Mickey's associated with Top Shelf and you mentioned magazines and newspapers there too. So talk a little bit about the magazine side of things. What, what, what kind of exposure do you get? What kind of results can you expect? How, how do you build an audience that way? Um, well, one of the things that I noticed um, more on like the newspaper side, like if you get a review in, let's say, Washington Post, um, you know, people will see that in their inbox. Or they might see it in a Google search result. But if they click on it, they end up hitting a paywall. You, know, you can't actually read it unless you're a subscriber to Washington Post. Um, if you get reviewed by a blog, you know, same thing happens. It shows up in your Google results. People see it. Um, you know, it's on social media. But if you click on it, you can actually read it. People actually share it. Um, so I, I honestly, I've seen better results from those types of open form media than I have from the things that, that end up behind a paywall. Um, that being said, you know, I've, I've been in, you know, decent sized, you know, magazines. I've been in People Magazine. I've been in Time Magazine, things like that. Um, that exposure, I think it, it legitimizes you. I, I think it, it gives you credibility. And, and that's just as important as the, the actual exposure. So like I was saying, it's, it's a mix of all these different things that add up to, you know, I, personally, I'm shooting to become a household name. And I think that's how you do it. You have to just you have to be everywhere, you know, anywhere you can get. Um, you know, just throw as much spaghetti up on the wall and see what sticks. Yeah, I, I think what I'm hearing you saying is it's not always about some type of measurable ROI. It's not always about calculating a specific monetary result. It's sometimes it's it's a matter of influence or familiarity that you're going for. Yeah, I mean, the bottom line is anytime you get an opportunity to get your name out there, you should take it. Um, if, if there's a price tag attached to it, obviously you've got to weigh that, you know, and, and decide whether that, that price tag is worth it or whether that money is better spent elsewhere. Um, but for the most part, any kind of exposure you can get is, is going to be good. And the funny thing is like, it kind of harkens back to back when I worked at the, the record label back in the day. And, you know, if, if a recording artist got arrested, you know, the record label was fine with that because it was publicity, yeah. you know, like all publicity is good publicity. That was, you know, what they always drilled into our head and, and, you know, it's kind of the same thing in this world.
Yeah, I'm not gonna yeah. I'm not gonna go out and get arrested, but you know, if I can get my name <laughs> out there somewhere, I'm gonna do it. Not intentionally, anyways. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That. Yeah, that's a fun, it was a fun conversation with Mickey. So if you guys are interested in what a PR agency does, check out Creative Edge. And uh, yeah, it was great to have him on. It was it was a fun conversation. Absolutely. So who do we got next week? Next week we've got Christopher Rice. Um, so a lot, of, you know, I think everybody at this point knows his mom and rice, um, yes. you know, interview with the vampire is probably one of my all time favorite books. Um, and Christopher rice, you know, he's, his father was actually a poet. His father passed away a number of years ago, but his father was a poet. Um, and if you read Christopher rice's work, you can definitely see the influence of both of his parents in there. Um, his first novel, I think it was called the density of souls. It came out in, um, probably 1998, 1999, but I, I know it hit the New York Times list straight off the bat, um, and he really hasn't slowed down, and, and he's currently working with his mother as an executive producer on The Vampire Chronicles. Right. Um, so he's, he's a busy guy and fascinating to talk to, for sure. Yeah, he's quite a character. He's got a, a great personality, and I've listened to some of his podcasts and seen him do some interviews, so it's going to be a fun conversation. I'm really looking forward to it. All righty. Well, to our listeners, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.